I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. This this book, this staggering book, is um, has been just bewitching me all week. Um, it feels like an extraordinary work of openness and generosity. It feels like it ranges across centuries and continents. It brings in Nelson and Shelley. It brings in Wolfe and Bowie. But it also feels to me like Philip's most intensely private book, like it's a conversation going on through time in this sort of beautifully intimate way and we have a great deal to talk about but Philip's going to start with actually a very small a little sort of fingernail of a reading to just give you the spirit of it thanks the origins of it in fact yeah the origins ah stand up not long ago but long enough I looked into the old cupboard in my bedroom and at the back among the piles of floppy disks and peeling spines of my children's encyclopedias, I found a notebook. It was in an old-fashioned imperial format, half-bound with blue cloth and shiny paper, its foredge delicately spattered like a blackbird's egg. It came from the cable factory where my father had worked all his life. Inside, on faint-lined pages, intended for notes on amps and electrical resistance, were writings and drawings I'd done when I was about 15 years old. On each left-hand page was a picture in bright poster paint, a futuristic city, art deco designs, lithe figures out of some space opera or Russian ballet, fantastic images I'd collected in my teenage head. Halfway through the book, I'd painted something I'd really seen. A leaping killer whale, slick with a coat of clear nail varnish to mimic its black and white skin, as if it had jumped out of the sea rather than a concrete pool in a suburban safari park. On the right-hand pages, I composed lyrics and prose, the things I couldn't say out loud. Looking at this parade of longings 40 years later, I realised that the 15-year-old me had already mapped out his life along those pale blue lines, as if I'd already lived in reverse. Everything that came after 
had been entered in that blue notebook, balanced on my knees while I watched television in our front room, waiting for whatever might come next. So this is really a book about a convergence of obsessions, a conversation between various different kinds of passions. And I want to talk about the sort of conversational aspect in a minute, but first of all, I just want to ask you how you came to some of the people, and especially some of the... It's a book very populated by writers. Mm. And I want to know how you came to some of those characters. Well, I suppose it was... They came in and out with the tide, really. I mean... There are many people in that book who will be familiar to you from, from their relationship to the sea or the water. I mean, Wolf. But then when you look at Wolf, she has a very different relationship to the sea as well. Um, it's very interesting that when I looked into her diaries, she's actually owned at least two copies of Moby Dick and had read it three times. And when you have that knowledge and you go to look at To the Lighthouse and the Waves... They look different, and they especially look different when you read that she had this pervading, pervasive image in her head, which was the image that inspired her, of a distant fin far out. And it was from her childhood in St. Ives. And it comes up all the time. It's in the diaries, it's in the books, it's in the waves. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And it's extraordinary, elusive. And, And of course, if you think of To the Lighthouse, going this unattainable white object held out in the ocean. Um, There are many references um, which are subvert and sensual. Not for nothing did she associate Vita with a porpoise. She called her my porpoise. Uh, And that's partly inspired by this bizarre scene when they spend their first night together and they go to um, Tunbridge Wells in a fishmonger shop and they see a porpoise lying dead on a slab in the fishmongers. And it's lit by this strange pinky light, presumably one of those lights to keep away sort of bugs and things. And she makes this direct... It's almost to do with Vita's pearliness and strangeness and um, sort of almost otherworldly size, I suppose, that she makes this relationship. So there's a direct sensual relationship. And as you... You know, uh, I didn't go and read To the River again when I was writing the book because I didn't want to be influenced by it. But of course it was in the back of my head because you followed Virginia down to that end journey. And what you make very clearly, make very clear in your book is the way that we retrospectively read Wolf, which is completely crazy because, you know, the, uh, and although she had very you know, depressive periods in life, to, we live in the knee of her filling her pockets with stones and going into the river. So we see water in her work as this malevolent force yeah. when you sort of recover it as this sensual force exactly. as well. Exactly, exactly. So she became one clear figure, I suppose. Um, but then other, more, less obvious figures, like Wilfred Owen, for instance. Who and is, Shelley. And Shelley. I mean, we know, of course we know Shelley, that's how he, he ended his life. Yeah. But... Who knew that he, when he was obsessed with the water? He would often get into a river, into the sea, without the benefit of having learnt to swim. 
So oh, he would... <laughs> So he would sink to the bottom, and people like Byron used to go crazy because they'd have to jump in and pull him out. And, he said, and then he'd be like, "Why did you do that?" Did you do that? He said, "Why did you do that?" I, in a minute, I would have been in another planet. <laughs> well, yeah, you would, but you know. Um, and when I was writing the book, I went. I was very lucky to be invited at the Bodleian to see the drowned notebook, which was fished out of Shelley's body. This soaking manuscript. Well, it's not a manuscript, it's a bound notebook. It had lost its, its, its boards, but um, made of very fine Italian paper. And, and it's never really put on show now because it's, the sea had washed away 90% of what's in it. Oddly enough, sepia ink, you know, ink yeah. which has already come from the deep ocean. Um, and, to, uh, and of course, nowadays, now they, you don't wear gloves when you handle books, you know, you, because it's much easier to make to create damage by that. So I was having unprotected sex with this book, um, which is full of pornography. Uh, loads of huge erections and people being fucked up the arse. I'm sorry, but that's... That is, isn't it? I know, I'm sorry. If you look very carefully in there, that's, you will see it. But, straight to the bottom uh, <laughs> But yeah, so you have an entirely different view of Shelley. And his is, you know, and his deeply aquatic nature and, uh, mm. uh, 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 and then Byron of two, of course, who does learn to swim, but who knew that every time Byron got in the water, he vomited. Mm. I didn't know that. I mean, he, he was always sick when he was in the water, yet he always did it, you know. And when, and when they burn Shelley, when they burn Adonais, when they burn this, bur this comet who's fallen, fallen onto the beach, you know, they've, they've, Shelley's body had to be temporarily interred in the sand for reasons of health, the, the Italian authorities demanded it. So he was dug up, it was like a sort of romantic clam bake, you know. Uh, and, um, and they even, Trelawney even had this huge um, metal trellis work, like a barbecue, which they barbecued him on. It was a purpose-built sort of a beer. Um, and as his brains were bubbling in his cranium, Byron sort of self-stealing the thunder as ever, ripped off all his clothes and ran into the water. I said, I've got to challenge the element that took my friend. And again, he vomited everywhere. <laughs> um, so it's, um, uh, yeah, so there's, there's very interesting relationships with water. And then Byron as well. Say about Byron's end. Yeah, well, the Byron, of course. But, you see, the thing is that Byron would never drown because Byron was born veiled. Now, does anyone know what that means? It means that if you're born with the call, the amniotic sac around your head, you will never drown. You will never drown. It's like Achilles. Um, so in David Copperfield, he, David Copperfield is born veiled. He's born with a call. And it's taken away and actually auctioned off because it's a very valuable thing because it confers that same power to the owner to the extent that during the First World War when the first submarines started, U-boats started sinking British ships, the price of a call went up tenfold because it would protect, you know, if you, you gave it to your sailor boyfriend or lover or son. Uh, and Byron was born with a call. Um, so it meant he would never drown. But he succumbed to the water eventually um, in, in a marsh, a horrible fetid marsh in Greece. And Trelawney, who's this great buccaneering figure mm. who is a complete uh, mythomane. I mean, he completely invents himself for the romantics. He fits this, they want this all-action, piratical, sort of huge handlebar moustaches, virtually twirling a cutlass <laughs> above his head. You know, he comes in, and he's there, and he, he's trying to teach Shelley to swim, and he's 
He buys Byron's boats for him. In fact, he buys the boats that Shelley sank. We have him to blame because he bought a really crappy boat for Shelley, which That's actually so sunk. Um, so, then, so he appears on the deathbed scene of Byron. Actually, he's just missed Byron's death. And, of course, he, he, it's the great myth about Byron is his malformed body, that he has a yeah. club foot. Uh, and he goes up to the dead body and he peels back to look at the, dead, the, uh, the club foot and both feet are clubbed. So he's almost like the little mermaid who couldn't walk on land, you know, was walking around on knives. Yeah. This is where Byron only ever felt comfortable in the water, supposedly. But what I couldn't figure about that story is if he'd been swimming so many times as Byron, how does it come that's the first time he's seen the other foot was clubbed? I mean, he'd seen maybe Byron. Maybe he swam in his boots. Uh, maybe he did, yeah. But I mean, certainly they, they swam naked often, so always. So, um, but yeah, but it's another way. There was something stories. very beautiful about that story because he, Trelawney remembers Byron entering room after room, sort of running on his tiptoes. And he remembers how he had to keep his weight low because he didn't want his feet to have to bear mm. the weight of his body. And yeah. you get the sense of these people who are more at ease in water than they are on Absolutely. land, which seems like the commonality yeah. that you're sort of tracing yeah. Yeah. through yeah. all of yeah. these different yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's something else related to that that I found really fascinating, which is we have all of these sort of models of artistic inspiration, and we think of the artist as an individual, the sort of romantic vision of the artist, and they're alone, perhaps in nature or in the sublime, and they're sort of writing their things. But you create this model of people being inspired by each other, people conversing with each other, people reading each other's books, people attuned to the same strange frequency that mm. seems to run through the centuries, mm. which I found both beguiling and beautiful, mm. but also right. It mm. felt right mm. to me. It felt like the way that we do make art. Mm. And I was sort of fascinated by that, where that, where that vision came from, how mm. deliberate it was, or whether that was something that was sort of a consequence of the book at the end. I mean, they're like whales. They're like whales who are tuned to the same. You yeah. know, you've got you've got sort of Shelley and Wilfred Owen and Bowie, and they're, they're yeah. singing some frequency to each other. Well, it's really interesting because last week, on the day the book was published, um, I I happened to find a notebook, like the blue notebook I found in this in my bedroom. I found another stuck in the corner. A note, uh, 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 the the notebook that I I I compiled from. 2001, which is the first time I went to Provincetown, which is where this whole journey began, um, this watery journey anyway. Well, it doesn't. It begins much earlier than that. It begins with Windsor Safari Park with my sisters um, going to see a killer whale. But that's backtracking. And, and, and I sort of written about that in Leviathan. But so in the year 2001, um, so this is what connects these things in a very strange way. In the year 2001, Tina Brown sent me to St. Lucia to interview Lord Glen Connor. Really posh gig. And it gets know? really the best gigs. <laughs> and Lord Glen Connor was the nephew of Stephen Tennant. Yeah. So Stephen Tennant, who's my first biography that I ever wrote, uh, incredibly sort of gender neutral. Um, Caroline Blackwood, who's Lucian Freud's wife, described him as the nearest as every boy they had in the 1920s. I mean, he wore gold dust in his hair and had Vaseline on his eyelids and dressed in a kind of an extraordinarily androgynous way. Anyway... I, uh, Tina Brown wanted me to go and interview Lord Glencon. I went down there. There's an amazing time with him. And he was very like Stephen, extremely eccentric, aristocratic, um, uh, uh, ne'er-do-well in many ways. I mean, he was one point Princess Margaret's boyfriend, although he was gay, you know. Um, all Princess Margaret's boyfriends I was just going to say, all Princess Margaret's boyfriends so were gay, darling. Now, but they, they were. Um, anyway, so I was coming back from there and... and um, 
John Waters, who'd reviewed my biography yeah. of Stephen Tennant for the New York Times, John Waters launched my career because John Waters reviewed my book for the New York Times book review and it was on the front cover. And that, that's really where my career began because that's, you know, it became a bestseller in the US. Uh, it already done well in Britain, but uh, with John's imprimatur. And so John, who I'd already met, I went, he, I, I went to see him in, in, in his house in uh, West Highfield in Burke. Uh, Avenue in, in Baltimore, amazing house. The first thing you walk into is an electrocution, uh, executioner's chair, you know, like an electric chair. And a very, very extraordinary place, very extraordinary house. But, um, so John invited me to go and visit him in Provincetown, um, where he spends May to October. All his books, all his films have been written there. Um, and he stays in this house, which is a, ha- a beach house owned by a woman who is really the presiding spirit of, of much of the book. Uh, a woman called Pat DeGroote, who's now 87, amazing artist. Her husband, Nano DeGroote, was friends with de Kooning, Pollock, um, uh, uh, all that kind of abstract expressionist. He died young. He died actually the year they finished building his house on the beach. Extraordinary ramshackle. Um, just, you don't, you don't know what's where. I mean, John, and I, John stays in the top studio, and then I stay below him. And then Pat's below us, and then she has another studio. It was, I've been staying there now for 15, 16 years. It's only this January that I discovered an entirely new staircase in the house that I didn't even know. <laughs> and the feral cat, she has lots of cats, and they live in strange flues. So you'll open a cupboard to get a towel, and this cat will jump out. <laughs> and they have another entire life. And there are possums under, living underneath the, underneath the uh, house. But the house is built so far over the beach that actually in uh, spring tides, at high tides, there actually floods underneath the house. So it becomes like an ark. And Pat is this, this Prospero figure. She only has just finished we'll kayaking. out. In the, she used to kayak with Orca out in, the, uh, out in Cape Cod Bay. Uh, some bays naked, and, naked in the dunes, which is not allowed. It's national seashore. There are certain regulations. Park rangers come and give her a ticket. She says, Look, honey, I've been doing this for 70 years. Do you think a $5 ticket's going to make any difference? <laughs> amazing woman. She walks into my studio naked. She's 87. Fantastic body. Um, I mean, just amazing. So she is like, um, what's the Armistead Mall poem? Miss- oh, Mrs. Magical. Mrs. Magical. Mrs. Magical. And she says, she's got John upstairs. She's got me downstairs. And then she'll have someone else down in the bottom studio who's really slumming it down there. <laughs> Uh, and so it's this house which is so connected with the sea. So John invited me to Provincetown. I just, whoa, just this extraordinary place, which is right at the furrow said, you know, a man may stand there and put all America behind him. Mm. It's just held out on this sandy spit into the Atlantic. Unbelievable place. Um, Tennessee Williams auditioned Marlon Brando there as a 19-year-old. I didn't know that. Yeah. I can't think why Brando got the job. <laughs> I mean, he was rubbish. He arrived, all sweaty, in his old T-shirt, and the jeans. Hadn't even dressed Marlon up. Brando, 19. Anyway, sorry, sorry, little digression, Philip Hall digression. I, I, I knew um, Noel Coward's agent, who was o- Oasis, in 1949. So when a Streetcar Named Desire was on stage in London, but before the film had been made, and he saw Marlon Brando sitting at the edge of the pool in Oasis, in his swimming trunks, 19. Anyway, so I won't get excited. Um, but um, so, God, this is why this is why Craig Brown called me the Ronnie Corbett of literature because all my stories. I've even got the chair, haven't I? Um, 
So, Provincetown. Um, <laughs> that made me run faster. <laughs> run, 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 run. Um, no, I'm running faster. Oh, right, right, no, no. <laughs> so, anyway, so I'm uh, staying uh, with John in Provincetown, was introduced to the Dykes Provincetown. It was only on the last day that I left Provincetown that I met my first whale. Uh, and that's kind of how I came to write Leviathan. But what was extraordinary about that year, 2001, which has another connection in that 2000 was always the year that we look towards as people of a certain generation here, the impossibility of 2001 actually happening. Yeah. What would happen? It's like the millennium, it was the millennium bug for us. It wasn't 2000, it was 2001. And of course, what happened that year did change everything. You know, shortly after I left Provincetown, I went back to New York. I went down to Battery Park. I went to see Steven Spielberg's AI, at the end of which you see the flooded, flooded New York, post-apocalypse New York, with the flooded Twin Towers. Yeah. And I was at Battery Park underneath the Twin Towers. And as I came out of the Soho, I just had this real sense of looming. I actually ran back to the Soho Grand where we were staying. I ran back. Um, and in this notebook, this was June 2001, in this notebook I wrote, and this happened when I go back to Southampton, I, 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 I wrote, terrorist attack on a city like Southampton on towers, and then an Iraqi terrorist being tortured. And that was in June. This is a book <laughs> that plays strangely, or moves strangely through time. It's, mm. There are all kinds of futuristic visions, but a lot of the futuristic visions belong far into the past. Mm. And that was something that I think, you know, we think that things move like that and mm. become more and more modern, mm. and yet there are people who seem like icons of modernity, and there are visions of apocalyptic futures that mm. we seem to only just be mm. emerging mm. into, yeah. Yeah. which maybe makes this the moment to start talking about Bowie, yeah. who has a strong... Mm. And this is mm. how Philip and I became... Should we say that? Yep. This is how we became friends yeah. over our shared vast grief over mm, Bowie, mm, which mm. we can't actually talk about. No, we because we start crying, but, um, <laughs> but talk about his place in the book. So Bowie was always the beginning of the book. Uh, and, and actually, when did you start writing it? Did you start writing it while he was still alive? It was all written. That was the thing. It was Seriously? Because I went back to Provincetown in January 2016 to edit the book. And um, I woke up, so it was all written. It's all written. Wow. I know. Well, um, when you read the book, you will understand how it's deeply strange that uh, is. It's deeply strange. And I, my other sister, Christina, sent me an email at 2 o'clock in the morning. I never checked my emails at 2 o'clock. I woke up for some reason, and she said, Bowie, we've lost him. And um, it, that was extraordinary, because the whole book was written as a love letter to him. Um, he'd, um, I'd, uh, I do find it hard to t talk about it because he's our life, you know, and, and uh, yeah. he represents and, and the, the grief that we were talking about this the other night, the grief that we felt about. And it is like Jeremy Hopkins, you know, why are you grieving? You're grieving for yourself. But um, uh, because it was someone who regarded as immortal. Uh, but so I shouldn't use that word literally, but it was literally. I had been writing about him that day, and I, I was editing the thing. Um, so, um, yeah, so that was very, very difficult. Um, and so the only po bit that I wrote after that is the... The very end. Mm, yeah. 
And he ties in, so there are two, I mean, this is a book sort of, that moves through so much of literature, that finds the sort of watery current that goes through dozens, if not hundreds of books. But out of that, two in particular really stood out. Orlando, Virginia Woolf's gender, fluid, time-traveling hero heroine, and The Tempest, Prospero, the Mm. monster, the spirit. Mm. And they both seem very tightly tied up with Bowie as well, that he he is in both of those, he's acting out both of those. When Jarman made The Tempest, he wanted Bowie to sing Ariel's part. Um, The first time I saw Bowie was in 1976, um, 41 years ago now, um, uh, in the Empire Pool, Wembley which, of course, was a swimming pool. It was a swimming pool. It was built for the British Empire Games in 1934. Uh, and as is the way when you see someone like that who you've already... You know, I mean, I was a suburban boy in Southampton when I saw this man, Michael Bracewell, has written so brilliantly about this, who leaned through the television screen and, and reached out to touch you, um, physically, intellectually, sexually, exactly. in every way. Yeah. I mean, you have yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I actually got on a suburban train from station to station to from suburban Southampton to Wembley and went into this room, I was uh, alone with him Mm. in this room. I was alone with him in this room. He was caged in fluorescent light. It's like when Lindsay Kemp said when he first met him, he thought he'd met the Archangel Gabriel. Um, He was caged in electric light and it was just me and him. And he walks on and he says... uh, sings to me such as the stuff in which dreams are made of. Wow. So it's all there. He was Prospero. Yeah. He was Prospero. Um, bending Prospero sound. And Prospero is the artist anyway. All artists yeah. come in and out of Prospero, but that's somebody yeah. who purely embodies yeah, Prospero. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that title track, Bending Sound, here I am in my room looking, overlooking the ocean. Um, it's this extraordinary, and again, as you say, an apocalyptic, in 1976 was an apocalyptic mm. time, yeah. as we know. Yeah. The country was collapsing. Um, the, the, you know, no electricity. Yeah. You, know, you were li- living by candlelight. It felt like things were going backwards. Uh, the dead were going unburied, you know. Um, all those aspects. And, and as I came out of the Empire Pool Wembley, Susie Sue and Steve Severin walked past me. <laughs> so you woof, you know. I doesn't remember the fourth or five, fifth time I've been to London. Um, and what does that do? Yeah. You know, what does that do? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have these, and I think that's what you're talking about, Olivia, is these strange nodal points where everything collides from the back to the front, and they just, yeah, and something happens, and there's all these sparks. Mm. I think 75, 76 was an era like that. Mm. Things were happening, weird things were happening. Yeah. Um, you talk about this. Um, we're talking about Peter Schlesinger's book, which is yeah. very interesting. Um, uh, and Derek uh, Jarman making his songs about John Dee, exactly. you know, this magician, that you get this sort of sense of... Exactly. And times I, that echo into other times. I, in, in 1976, I was at college in London in, in Twickenham in Strawberry Hill, which is Horace Walpole's Gothic part, but it was, it was a Catholic teacher training college at that point. Um, or it was part of the University of Southampton. It, it was University of London. It was issuing uh, degrees under the University of London. But my friend, the only other punk, because obviously you couldn't go to London in 1976 and be into Bowie and not. Go. I, was, I would go to the Roxy Club every night. I would get the train from Strawberry Hill 
to Waterloo, walk over Waterloo Bridge carrying a penknife because there was a lot of violence. You know, yeah. I did carry a penknife. Uh, and um, into deliquescent apocalyptic Covent Garden. Mm. There were no shops there then, you know, just empty warehouses mm. to go to the Roxy Club. Um, the only other person I knew in my college who was into all this stuff, a guy called Peter Paul Hartner, who ended up being Lee Barry's official photographer to be a very interesting man. But anyway, he brought in 1970, autumn of A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. He brought this copy of a, of a, of a, of a manuscript, a, a film script, and said, you know, uh, if I wanted, there was some extra work in this. I read this script and I thought it was utterly ridiculous. It was Jubilee. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> I've turned down many things in my time. <laughs> That's probably the worst. Reasons. The other most stupid thing I've ever done in my life was is when I met Warhol at the Antidote Gallery in 1987. I took my Polaroid camera, one of those, you know, the button ones, and took 10 Polaroids off, the, off him, got him to sign them. Wonderful. Why didn't I hand him the fucking camera? Take a picture of me and sign. He had all these signed. I would have had a Warhol. Um, that was one of the most stupid, other most stupid things I've done in my life. But, um, <laughs> but I was too excited to meet him. And I, it's funny because um, that event was amazing because um, there's such a press crush. And they were the camouflage pictures, you know, the yeah, fright yeah. wig and the camouflage pictures. And the press were like leaning over this glass table to try and get at him as they were trying to interview him. And the table cracked. This is really awesome. You could see him like, oh, oh God, wow. there's another Valerie Solanus, you know. Uh, and one of the photographers backed into one of the paintings, put his foot. Oh my God! Yep. And it was amazing. It was a complete map. But the next day, it was a private view at the Hayward for a, a view of uh, Lee Miller's photographs. And I was standing, look at a freestanding picture of free, Lee Miller's bum. Um, uh, and around the side came Warhol, just Warhol. And he goes, Hi. <laughs> That's what you really need, it's isn't good, it? Because uh, <laughs> he was monosyllabic and he did look like something that had come from the, 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 t- the air. From the air. I mean, such an ill-looking man, you know, so pallid, you know. But, and actually, um, that brings me quite beautifully to yeah. another question, mm. which sort of ties into all of this. Mm. Something I hadn't known about Philip and discovered from this book is that you grew up Catholic, mm. and Warhol was Catholic. I mean. I was brought up Catholic. Almost everyone I ever write about mm. was Catholic. And, but it's always the sort of subterranean thing that you find out mm. later. Mm. And I'm interested in what, what that sensibility and what that sort of asceticization of suffering, of yeah. transcendental experience, whether you think that's... I mean, it, it's clearly got a role to play in this book. Station to station isn't about trains. It's, yeah, about, it's about the stations of the cross. Yeah. Um, and uh, look at Billy Budd. A key point in, in the book is Billy Budd, who is the sacrificial young man, um, who actually I've 
just written a piece for the New Station just come out about the notion that actually Melville actually imagined Billy Budd as black. It's very interesting. He had a, Wasn't he just played by a black actor? Uh, was he a yeah, performance recently? I don't know. Was I think so, interesting. yeah. Interesting. But this innocent man who has his Achilles heel um, is that he has a stammer and that's what leads him to being convicted and hanged. And he's plunged down into the sea. Um, and again, it's the tempest, you know, his eyes might mm. turn into pearls. Mm. Um, this sort of exquisite sacrifice and yeah. these sort of deathly experiences that transform into something that might be Absolutely. beautiful as well. And he's seen as innocent because he doesn't have an erection when he's hanged. They, they, oh. they, he's watched Unlike by the captain. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So he, he is kind of this innocent person. He's an innocent but beloved of all the crew. Mm. Um, that little book I discovered in 2001 is all about Billy Budd. I read Billy Budd before I went to Moby Dick. Billy Budd's what took me to the whales. Oh, wow. Billy Budd took me to the whales. It's really interesting. Um, uh, and Melville was obsessed with Celtic mythology. Billy Budd, the word, the, the, his name comes from the Celtic god of the sun and sacrifice, Billy Budd, two names for this Celtic god. So there is so much invested in that. Um, and of course, if you grew up Catholic in Britain, you are the outsider. Mm. You know, I think about this this morning, actually, I was thinking of this phrase, practicing Catholic. It's like practicing homosexual. No, actually, I've got it right, actually, <laughs> on both accounts. Yeah. But it's that notion of being the outsider, of being, you know, uh, Roman Catholic. So you're not even British, you're mm. Roman Catholic, you know. Um, uh, so you have that oppositional identity, which is bound up in this religion, which supposedly, supposedly denies your unnaturalness. Although, actually, that isn't quite as clear-cut as yeah, it sounds. Yeah, it's actually more complicated. Yeah, it's much more complicated, as you know, yeah. as you know. I mean, we, we won't need to go into all that, but, but there's lots of reasons why that's all that. Yeah. But also the kind of notion is if you grow up queer, you're told you're an unnatural. You know, especially if you're growing up in the 60s and 70s, you're unnatural. But so you have, the, what is the natural then? You yeah. Know? And that's what, what and another real inspiration, uh, and we talked about this, for me in this book is, is Jarman's Modern Nature, yeah. which I know is one of your favorite books. Yeah. And that's a wonderful book. And it's just sort of antagonistic to that sense that, nature and robust heterosexuality go hand in hand and that mm. nature is something that's separate from politics mm. and that's separate from sexuality. Mm. Why do we have all mm. these nature writing books? Mm. I mean your books are so sort of saturated mm. in sexuality and mm. complex sexuality mm. and there's this sort of thread of nature writing in this country at the moment that I feel is well, so it, different from that. It can be, it can, can be quite blokish. Do you think Will? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, Will's is not. Not Will's, not, not Will's. Will's. No, no, but I think there's an there's aspect of it. No, that's why I'm sad. That's why I asked him. His book is absolutely, his book's queer as well. But, um, but the, sea is, the sea is queer. The sea is queer. Water is queer. Water is queer, exactly. I mean, jellyfish, jellyfish change sex halfway through their lives, you know, just because they can, basically. There are plenty mm. of deep sea fish who are, they can be whatever you want them to be. Mm. Whatever demanded of the of the time, they could be male or female or in between. We like those fish. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, f I feel like we should probably turn it over to the audience, but yeah. I just have one more question that I'm. Well, I don't know. No, I will ask it. Yeah. Um, because it because it sort of touches on from that. That this as you begin this book, it seems very much like it's going to be an account of swimming in cold waters and going out on a whale. These sort of things that we've become familiar with. 
And the deeper you get into it, the sort of stranger and more expansive it becomes. But one of the things I was really struck by is that it's, it doesn't shy away. I mean, comparisons to Sebald are made about you all the time, and I, mm. I think, that's, I think mm. that's right. And I think those comparisons are made very easily and, mm. and wrongly. But mm. the thing that seems most key to me about Sebald's work and what you are doing here is dealing with really the dark materials of, of history. So we've talked about the drowned bodies that wash up through this book, but there are also much, much more dark material. You talk about slave ships, you talk about famines, you talk about the sort of, really the, the sort of worst elements of history as well. And that particularly comes out in this mm. extraordinary chapter about Wilfred Owen, yeah. who, who really drowns under the weight of, yeah. a, of a hellish period of history. And I wondered if you could just yeah. talk a tiny bit about him before, yeah. before we open out to you yeah. guys talking yeah. to Yeah, I mean, Owen is the emotional heart of the book. Bowie is the presiding sort of thing, but Owen becomes, I think he has become the... And Owen, who was brought up for the sea, his father, Tom Owen, was a railway clerk in Birkenhead, but on his days off, used to dress up as a sailor and go down to Liverpool docks and pick up sailors. Not for that reason, but because he, had, he was a sailor monkey. He wanted to be, that's what he wanted. Yeah. And he brought up Wilfred to be a sailor. And he made Wilfred learn to swim at a very early age. Wherever they, they went, they would go swimming in really dangerous conditions, you know, uh, crazy sort of swimming. And Wilfred was completely hardwired to the sea. So when he goes to Torquay in, in 1910, uh, he goes down to the beach, and he it's a transcendental experience for Wil, Wilfred Owen. Um, mm. Very interesting. If you start to look at his work in that context, it's so it's so riven with the water. It felt like it opened his work up in a completely different way. Absolutely, I felt absolutely. like I'd never encountered him before. Uh, it's, it really me too. Is me too. Objective. And when I look, I went through his archives at the uh, in Oxford, and it's so interesting to see how watery it is. Even the yeah. first big poem he wrote was about the Little Mermaid, about this notion of transformation, you know. Um, and, and of course, because he is trying to deal with his sexuality at a time where there's no context for that, so there's no context. Except wild. Except yeah. wild. And Owen arrives at Robert Graves's wedding in St. James's Piccadilly on the arm of Robbie Ross. Robbie Ross. You don't do that by accident. That's not. That's no accident. You don't arrive on Wilde's first lover's arm. Yeah. Publicly. Yeah. Publicly. Um, but this is this sort of secret language that I feel like a lot yeah. of people will have. You go through with queer eyes, and mm. you see a whole different story you to do. somebody who'd be like, "Oh, and then he came in with this you person." Do. You do. Yeah, and that's what the so you're reading it differently. Yeah, and that's what the sea does for you because you realise it is this fluid place, and the reason why people are drawn to them because they haven't got another way of expressing that fluidity. The sea expresses the sea absorbs it. Um, wherever Owen went, even when he enlisted. He always found a river or a pond or a beach to swim in. And amazingly, a handsome young man would appear. It's extraordinary. Every time time. he just cruises. It's incredible. So the last thing he ever does on British soil, he swims off Folkestone Beach. He goes down there and he writes home to his mother. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm just, he's just leaving. This is like, he doesn't know it's the last time. It's like, Wilfred Owen, we're reading the same way we read um, Virginia Woolf. Mm. We don't know. You know, he didn't know this was going to, it's because he might have had that intimation. But as he swims off Folkestone Beach, he talks about this godlike image of a Harrow public schoolboy. Walks out of the water, it's sort of like, uh, you know, 
it's like Daniel Craig, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and he is, you know, he's completely fired up with this. So he is going back to the front. He knows what literal shit he's going back to. He's mm. going back to a flooded landscape where he has to rub whale blubber into his men's feet to prevent them from the trench foot and where they steal the life jackets from the ferries so that they can go across those, that blasted, flooded landscape and not drown, because I mean, so many people drowned. The, of all the images in the book, that was the one that haunted me. I Did anyone in this room mm, know that? That mm, they were wearing life jackets mm, in the mm, trenches mm. is just no, no, extraordinary. No. Water is benign Absolutely. and water is also malevolent. Yeah. And he, he, uh, the only book he's carrying is Elizabeth Bat Browning's. Yeah. And she's the, another big figure in the book whose brother drowns off Torquay, and she has this love-hate relationship with the water. And then Owen, of course, five days before the Declaration of Peace, Armistice, is killed as he's crossing a canal in France. And how, what's he doing crossing the canal? Well, they're just trying to... But he's on a raft. Oh, he's on a raft, yeah, no, exactly. So he's yeah, yeah. rafting along like yeah. some figure from heroic mythology. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. Um, and that's... And Owen, who, again, because, of, because he's cut short... It's like Moby Dick. The reason why Moby Dick is still exploding, the real way Billy Budd, which was unwritten when Melville died, unfinished, mm. I mean, uh, Moby Dick completely uncelebrated when Melville died, these things are still exploding. They still have mm. such potent power. Mm. They, like, that's, why, that's why Wolf bought into it. That's why Sylvia Plath is obsessed with Moby Dick. Mm. She tries to drown herself, you know. Yeah. She reads to the lighthouse and tries to drown herself, and she's, she's trying to emulate Wolf. And it's this meme, it's this watery meme, this queer watery meme. It's not, they're not all queer people, yeah. but it's the queerness of, of nature and, of, and the, 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 the fact that the sea does not care. Mm. So it does not judge. It doesn't judge. Yeah. It's an unjudgmental yeah, actually, place. That's a really good point. It doesn't, yeah, so you can say pitiless, but then that is a huge... Everything we do today, we are being judged, we are being filmed, we are being... Our movements are being tracked on those things you all hold in your pockets. I don't hold one for that reason. Nor do I. Uh, no, no. Um, but all those ways you are being judged. And you know, when, when, you know, people say to me, you, so I swam this morning at like four o'clock in the morning. I swim every day. And if the tide falls at two o'clock in the morning and a snowy February morning and it's dark, that's when I swim. And, uh, and, and it's, it's not... It's not exercise, it's, it's a ritual for me. Uh, and, uh, 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 and it's, a, it's a, People say to me, you should tell people where you're going, you know. Uh, uh, you should take a phone with you. What the fuck use is that? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, someone could be, it's like, anyone could be standing at the end where that door is now, and I'm here, I will die. There's nothing they could do about it. Mm. This morning, I was swimming at four o'clock in the dark, and I realised the tide was taking me quite far out. And I went further than I was meant to usually go, partly because I was making up new lyrics to the, do the Strand, the Voxel Music song. <laughs> uh, so I was carried away with that. And, and I was kind of, and I thought, fuck, I've gone further out. And I realised it was really difficult to get back. And I thought, well, it's quite a nice way to go, though, isn't it? Trying to rewrite Brian I mean, this Ferry. event would have been awkward. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been awkward. But it would be great, wouldn't it? You'd have to come in and you'd have Being a black armband. All right, you guys, do you have questions for Millen? You could basically ask him about anything. Evan's too shell shocked. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wait one sec, there's still a mic coming. Is oh. a mic coming to you? Is the Moby Dick project still online? It is, yes, it is. Five million hits so far. 
Thank you. Yes, yes, it's, uh, yeah. One of the, my favorite chapters is John Waters reading The Cassock. Anyone read Moby Dick? Anyone knows what that chapter's about? Yes. About the whale's foreskin. Uh, John says, I hate this book. I would never read it. Um, and I said, look what it's about, though. <laughs> but yeah, it's still online. It's free. It's a wonderful way of listening. It's free. Um, different uh, people reading different chapters. Different people reading different chapters um, with artwork by wonderful contemporary artists, George Shaw, uh, Zaha Hadid, lots of wonderful artists. Um, but yeah, yeah. Thank you for that plug. <laughs> Where did you swim this morning? Sorry? Where were you swimming? Where did I swim this morning? Southampton Water. Uh, uh, sorry? Where's the best place? You've ever swum. The best place I've ever swum? Oh, wow. Southampton Water. <laughs> it's wonderful. There's a big oil refinery. Um, there are dead dogs floating down. Um, container ships. Um, occasionally a seal will pop out. Um, it's a grimy, industrial, suburban place. You know that. I can hear you all day. <laughs> um, it's not pretty, is it? No, I'm thinking of Western Shore. That's where I swim, yeah. Just, just, I don't know, yeah. No, no, no. But that's why I love it. Uh, In March, I was swimming in the Indian Ocean in phosphorescent water, you know, like trailing stars past me, you know, amazing. Uh, um, But it kind of spoils you, really, for the reality of four o'clock in the morning, really, in a cold English channel water. Southampton has a double tide, so it's a very, that's the thing about Southampton, it's, it's magic, it's Prospero-like qualities, and when John Keats left Southampton in 1817, he left London because he was dog sick of it, and he had to go to the sea, he leaves Southampton, he is depressed, the thing that he reads as he goes down Southampton water is the Tempest, uh, so that's, that's what I see the Tempest, I don't see the container ships. Wilfred Owen recuperated on Southampton Water, just where on the beach where I swept, where I swim every day. Wilfred Owen walked that beach. Turner painted that beach, and now it's the most sort of industrial, sort of grubby, scrabby edge land. Uh, and but I love that history. I love the reality of that. Um, and the double tide is amazing. So it's it's twice as high. It stays high twice as long as everywhere else. Everywhere else, pretty much in Britain. Um, so you're suspended. There's, you have this window of time. So this morning I swam at the two high tides. So you have a kind of sense of suspension. And I cycled there in the dark. There's, there's foxes. Last month uh, I heard footsteps behind me on the beach. I thought I'd been rumbled. You know, I stand there naked, you know. Uh, but it's dark. I think, well, so it could be something quite creepy, you know. So who's out there? And it was a fox. It was a vixen. And she stopped right by me, at my feet, side my, by the sea wall, by, by my bike. And she just looked at me like this. And I looked at her and I said, I'm just going for a swim. She looked at me. I went for a swim. I came back, standing exactly the same place. Oh, wow. It was like this magical wow. thing. Um, so you'd, the thing is, swimming at night, everything else comes out. So strange people. Sometimes there are strange people. They're not often where I am, but strange people in the night. Uh, the animals, you know, the animals take over. The streets, I, cy- I make great point of cycling the wrong way down the road all the way there. Because you can, because there's nothing else. It's an, an anarchic act. I mean, I used to go to the Roxy Club in Taboo. You know, my, my anarchy is now expressed in riding the wrong way down the road. Um, 
in the dark. Uh, yesterday, there was because of that big thunderstorm yesterday, uh, the road was flooded. So the road peters out into like shingle and then trees, um, but it was all totally flooded. So my bike actually went swimming before I did. Um, so uh, 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 and it's it's just the place and it's the beginning of the book actually because a lot it was severely damaged in the storms of 2014. Um, uh, but it's it's a very there's a Cistercian Abbey, a ruined Cistercian Abbey behind me, and I know that monks like St Cuthbert used to meditate by going in naked into the water all night and praying in the water naked all night. So I'm sure the monks did that there. So I think that's what that's what I'm channeling, literally in the channel. <laughs> Anyone else? Any, there's one right at the end and there's one there. That's probably enough, those two. Green chairs at the back. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. I was very intrigued with what you were saying, Philip, about the sort of general recurrent theme of uh, interest of looking at a uh, sort of category of queerness, very encompassing category, uh, and the sea and lyricism. And there is this really interesting question, you know, lyricism is always in poetry, it's about universals that we can, everyone can read a lyric poem and identify with, this is my experience but of course if you've got someone who's got very specific sort of queer experience writing the lyric, that's a really interesting paradox mm. and it's one that people pull off, you know, particular mm. poets pull off other writers pull off mm. and I think someone like Wolf does it, yeah. she is very queer yes. and I think Joyce does it too I mean he, he died prematurely the book he was going to write after fitting his weight was about the sea and everything's gravitational. I didn't know that. that. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's so thing. interesting. Do you know that? I didn't yeah. know that. And of course, he swims in the 40 foot deep, doesn't he, in, in Dublin, where Wild swam. Yeah. 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 And other people also. Yeah, yeah. And Beckett, I think. <laughs> Beckett. Beckett, very interesting relationship with the water. Beckett. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, very interesting as well. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, sort of interested in the sea as this always a lyric experience, mm. you know, right mm. from mm. ancient cultures mm. and mm. early literature, early poetry, but specifically being so forgiving and so encompassing mm. and such a medium for mm. articulating yeah. very eccentric, very ind yeah. individual, sort of queer experience as, mm. uh, as a universal. And I think part of that's biological, isn't it? Part it of it's to do with the sort of recapitulation, you know, yeah. thing that Lawrence Oaken uh, observes in the early 19th century that the human fetus recapitulates itself, starts off like a little fish and it's in, yes. in salty water and yes. goes on, yes. which, you know, always, I always yes. line up as a much more encompassing sort of defense yeah. Yeah. of yeah. Uh, our sort of subjectivity yeah. as yeah, 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 yeah. encompassing yeah. like that as yes. with both it's yeah, kind of. I have to stop now. Uh, sorry. No, 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 I'm almost finished. Yeah, that, that idea of you know, what happens to gender yeah. in the womb. Yeah. You know, the only defense we've got against some feminists is saying we're all reconstituted women because there's some point where you know, the, the hormones kick in mm. and, uh, and the fetus is yeah. differentiated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, along biological gender. Absolutely, lines. absolutely. Mm. So, yeah, just wondering about this gender. Yeah. Well, absolutely, because also the other thing about because it's a self dramatizing, it's a self dramatizing. It's a performative place. Um, Peter Ackroyd's book on queer London, very interesting about the notion of performance uh, uh, the, uh, as, as expressed in queerness in London. And it is very much that sense of performance, I think, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and um, so also the mortality, the sense of the mortality in, in the water, um, the sense that actually, you know, there is a kind of solution to the... The, 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 the oppositional 
life that you lead on land, that there is something, well, actually, it's a beautiful way to die because you're left whole. So it's a so kind of... So it's an escape route. Yeah. And it's a disguise as well because the sea allows people to live lives that they couldn't live on land and that might conceal their queerness or facilitate their queerness in different ways. I thought about that a lot as I was reading about the different ways. Yeah, I was just, um, I, I was reading, I think, a review, I think it was in The Guardian, where they kind of, um, kind of projected that this was a kind of the final book in a three-book trilogy after yeah. Leviathan and Sea Inside. Yeah. I just wondered whether that was how, whether how you conceived that or whether that was an accident of writing or yeah. whether, if that holds any truck at all and whether it's a very just kind of isol- isolation, yeah. isolation thing or not. That's a really, really good question. That was probably the best review I've ever had because... Alex Preston, who wrote that review, who do, I don't know. I mean, he knows me. Um, it's the best review I've ever received. Uh, it's an astonishing review. It's so intuitive. Um, but um, it, I don't intend it to be my last book. <laughs> um, but it felt like that because... There he are slightly of, made it sound like you were just going to disappear into creation and never he did, come didn't back. He? he did, didn't yeah. he? I sort of felt like I can't write anymore because, you know... Um, it did feel like that, and, but and that's what it feels like as well. Part, partly because you know, I mean, I'm 60 next year, um, uh, 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 and partly because of Bowie, because you know, you just think who's yeah. reading the fucking things yeah, anymore? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, the terrible thing was, I mean, just to go uh, without. This is the first time I talk, talked about the Bowie thing, um, really, because only because it's this person here and I feel confident with that but um, uh, it really, really the book was written with the intention of I, I had his address I had his address um, and um, because of Martin and Jill here my friends here I actually contributed to the uh, Bowie is exhibition uh, at the V&A which was made that connection very much uh, for which I must thank them and um and at that point, I was taken by the curator down into the belly of the V&A, and he opened up this big plywood box, just semicircular. This is 2013. And he opened it up, and it was like a coffin. And inside was, stiff on its legend, was the costume he'd worn in the Ashes to Ashes, Ashes video, like a Jacobean, totally straight out of the Tempest. And it was almost quivering. It was like a chrysalis. It was like he'd already gone up. I wrote about this in my diary when I went home. It was like he'd already gone. And I reached down to touch it, and I thought, I can't make that connection. Because at that point, I thought, one day, I am going to make that connection. Mm. I really did. Because that's what that was written for. True. I have to say, actually, I wrote The Lonely City for him, and I thought that he'd read it, and he died just as it came out, or just before it came out. Yeah. That there are these people that... You know, they, they make you become an artist. Yeah, and you want to tell absolutely. them that that happened and you can't always absolutely. make that absolutely. transaction. I think that's yeah, part of it, right? Totally. Michael Bracewell, who's in the audience now, has probably written about that better than anyone in a way. Um, and yes, and for our generation, it was... No, but it's not generational. Because the, the most amazing thing about Bowie when he died was that our children my sister's children, my nieces and nephews, you know, they came to see Bowie Ears with me and, they, you know, I know they were just stunned with it, you know. 
because he was trans-chronological, mm. yeah. trans-everything. Yeah, modern, anachronistic, exactly. deep in the past, exactly. far into the exactly. future. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Provincetown, I was talking to a friend about it, you know, this was before he died, and he said, but he's only a man. No, wrong, incorrect. But he wasn't to me. Yeah. He wasn't to me. Of course he was only a man in one sense, but... But not in many other senses. These things come along. <laughs> no, exactly. So, yeah. Our work here is done. Please do thank Olivia Lang and Philip Hall. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. late bloomers tend to have more curiosity they tend to have more resilience there's stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men what if everything we've been taught is just all wrong what's worth more than this fear right now and that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being listen to deeply personal insightful and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers listen and subscribe to the unmistakable creative wherever you get your podcasts Yes.